0: You're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: Great. Well, um, my name's Wendy Fenton And I'm the coordinator at the Humanitarian Practice Network here at ODI. And I'd like to welcome you all to today's event and also the online audience. Um, Today we're focusing on improving mental health and psychosocial support in humanitarian crises. Um, And as I'm sure you all know, humanitarian agencies are increasingly prioritizing the provision of mental health and psychosocial Uh, support for people affected by crises and and this is really an important and welcome development especially given that according to the World Health Organization um, the prevalence of mild and moderate mental disorders can increase from a baseline of 10% to an estimated 15 to 20 percent in humanitarian crises and at, at the same time unrest and conflict can exacerbate the challenges in actually delivering high-quality mental health and psychosocial support. For example, in the Central African Republic, uh, instability in the presence of armed groups means that people have to travel much further to try to to access care. And in many cases, they simply can't get that care that they need. Um, In Iraq, about 20% of the population will suffer mental health uh, problems at some point in their lives but only 6% are able to access the support that they need. So uh, today, drawing on articles from the latest edition of the Humanitarian Exchange, and I think you have copies of this on your your chairs, um, and their own research and experience, our panelists are going to reflect on the progress made in strengthening the evidence base on effective mental health and psychosocial support approaches in humanitarian contexts. And importantly, also on translating those into good practice on on the ground. We're also going to discuss some of the challenges faced in both researching and implementing these approaches and interventions, and some strategies for how to address those, those challenges too. And I think another issue that will come up too is the very fruitful partnerships that are, are being uh, promoted between academic researchers and humanitarian practitioners as well. So I'd now like to introduce our panelists. Um, on my right, starting on my right, is Noor Kik. Noor is a public health professional and currently the policy and advocacy coordinator at the National Mental Health Program in the Ministry of Public Health in Lebanon. And she's leading the coordination of the Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Task Force, which aims at ensuring an effective, coordinated, and focused interagency response to the mental health and psychosocial support needs of persons living in Lebanon, with a special focus on persons affected by the Syrian crisis. And she also coordinates the development process of mental health related strategies and plans and efforts to mainstream mental health policy in other sectors. Noor has traveled from Beirut as well to be with us today, especially. So, welcome, Noor. Thank you, thank you very much. And then, joining us by video conference from, I think, the US, is Natalia. Do we have Natalia on the screen? Yes. Yes, hello. Hi, Natalia. Um, Natalia Kostandova is a program coordinator with the International Medical Corps in Central African Republic. And Natalia has over five years of experience working <coughs> on health programs in Burkina Faso, Tanzania, Chad, and CAR. And IMC has been implementing mental health and psychosocial support programs there since 2015. And the, the IMC program in CAR focuses on working with healthcare providers and provision of emergency relief and protection services. Then on my left is Dr. Allison Schaefer, who is trained in clinical psychology. She completed her PhD research dissertation in South Sudan, which is an area that I've spent quite a lot of time in and on, exploring various elements of mental health and psychosocial support. And Allison's currently a technical officer in the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse at the World Health Organization. Uh, I think you're based in Geneva? Yes. Yes. Um, having spent the previous eight years as the global, um, can I use this acronym, MHPSS, Mental Health and Psychosocial <laughs> Support? It's a terrible one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Technical advisor for World Vision International and World Vision Australia. And when when she was with World Vision, Alison uh, was part of the responses to the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone, the Syria conflict, and in the occupied Palestinian territories of West Bank and Gaza. And then last but not least, we have Dr. Vitsa Toll joining us from Denmark. Hi, Vitsa. Can you hear us? Ah, you must be on mute. <laughs> Vitz is an associate professor in the Department of Mental Health at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and also director of the Peter C. Alderman Program for Global Mental Health at HealthRight International. Vize's research and practice um, focuses on mental health and psychoso- psychosocial support in humanitarian crises, and he's particularly interested in oops, sorry, integrated programs that address the social determinants of mental health with people who experience adversity. And before we actually start our discussion with the panelists, I'd also like to introduce Anne Harmer, who is the program director for Elra's research for health and humanitarian crises program, and my co-editor for this edition. And Anne, um, Anne's been a, a huge support on this edition, and, and really helped to really shaped it. I think uh, in terms of the direction it went in. And I'd like to give Anne the opportunity just to say a few words about Elra and the R two HC before we start.
2: Okay. Well, thanks, Wendy. Um, yeah, for those of you who don't know, who don't know Elra, we're an NGO that supports um, partnerships, research, and innovation to improve humanitarian outcomes. And we have two large substantive programs, one that's the Humanitarian Innovation Fund and the other one's the Research for Health in Humanitarian Crises Program. And we fund quality innovation and research through a range of diverse actors and partners in order to get the results, which we then use. We synthesise the, the outputs of the work that we produce and we develop guidance and tools to actually support the practitioner communities. And the R2HC program itself um, is, is our, our objective is to improve health outcomes through increasing the evidence base on public health in humanitarian crises. And we were established in 2013, funded by DFID and the Wellcome Trust and now working also with the Department of Health. And what we aim to do is actually to, to increase the evidence base through the funding of research. And every research program that we support has to have an academic researcher alongside working alongside a humanitarian practitioner in order to make sure that the research that we fund actually improves and is, feeds into policy and ideally practice. So a lot of the work that we do then is around advocating with key stakeholders and um, influences in order to make sure that the, the research outputs feed into what's actually happening to, to improve practice. So last year, we, we collaborated with WHO um, on, on, a, on a consultation with the MHPSS, MHS, anyway, the Mental Health and Psychosocial <laughs> <See>? Interagency <laughs> Reference Group, um, to look at, to actually share the initial findings of some of the research that we have funded and also to, to look at how we can make sure that the, the research and the interventions that are successful can, are actually. Can then be taken to be implemented successfully in the field. So that was a very um, interesting initiative that we were, that led us then and helped us myself with Wendy to actually identify a far larger network of people whom we were able to approach, to be authors for this particular um, edition, special edition. And of the, f- the 40 research uh, um, programs that we've funded, actually, since we were established in 2013, 12 of these have focused on mental health, which is very exciting for us because it means that there's a substantive body of evidence that we can really start to take forward the collective um, ideas and solutions to move forward. And then of the 16 articles, actually, in this particular special edition, I'm really delighted that seven of those are people who are actually... Um, collaborating directly through research with the R2HC program. So I really hope that this special edition is going to be of interest and use both to practitioners and others who are really seeking to make sure that what we do in terms of addressing the mental health of people in humanitarian crises is evidence-based and effective. So thank you very much, Wendy.
1: Thank you, Anne. Okay, let's move on now with um I have a few questions that I'd like to ask our, our panelists. And, Noor, I'm going to start with you. Um, as you note in your article, the, the Syria refugee crisis has placed a huge strain on the, the Lebanese healthcare system. And the gaps in service provision and the lack of coordination between humanitarian actors was highlighted as early as 2013 by your colleague and co author, Dr. Uh, Rabi El Shameh. And in his report for UNHCR on mental health and psychosocial services for displaced persons, I mean, since then, how has the Lebanese government tried to address the issues around access to mental health care and coordination between the various actors?
3: Thank you, Wendy, for this question. Indeed, the the Syrian crisis has placed an enormous strain on the Lebanese health health system, With uh, the population having increased by more than one third since the onset of the Syrian crisis, this has uh, had repercussions on the economy, employment, and basic needs, including health services, physical and mental health services. And uh, this has also exacerbated, when we talk about mental health care, the limitations of the already weak mental health system in the country, even before the crisis, because uh, if we look at the system that was in place, we had uh, the the availability, the accessibility and the affordability of mental health services was highly limited. We had mainly services that are focused on the specialized hospital-based care, uh, available mostly in the private sector, so affordable to a few. Uh, we had no mental health department in the government, no mental health strategy, and uh, no legislation that could protect persons with mental disorders. And this was this gap of services was highlighted in the report that you're mentioning, Wendy, that was conducted with the onset of the crisis. Uh, and the report, uh, the results of the report, actually were a triggering point, uh, because building on that and recognizing that actually emergencies can be an opportunity to build back better, the Ministry of Public Health of Lebanon adopted a long-term vision uh, to respond to these challenges and to build a sustainable mental health system in the country. So what it did, actually, is that it took key strategic steps to move in that towards this long-term vision. The first thing was that it established a national coordination mechanism for the MHPSS response. Uh, and took on its leadership. It also launched a national mental health program within the Ministry of Public Health to lead the mental health system reform. And in order to guide the reform, to have a roadmap, the program launched in 2015 the first national strategy for mental health for the country. The strategy covers the period of 2015-2020. It has the vision that All persons living in Lebanon will have the opportunity to enjoy the best possible mental health and well-being. And here I would like to stress on the first part of the vision, which is that all persons living in Lebanon will have this opportunity. Because actually the strategy, that's the strategy, it aims to build a system in the country that can cater for the needs of both Lebanese and non-Lebanese living in the country, so as well displaced persons and refugees that have come to Lebanon through ensuring uh, increased availability and accessibility to mental health services. How do we aim to do so? Through achieving objectives that are set in the strategy in five domains of action. The first is leadership and governance. The second is service organization and scale-up. The third is promotion and prevention. The fifth is information, evidence, and research. And the fifth is dedicated to vulnerable groups in the Lebanese context that need special attention when it comes to mental health. So basically, uh, the the response uh, that the ministry has undertaken is based on a whole system approach with the aim of building and anchoring all the building blocks of the system and ensuring that it is accessible to everyone. Since its launching, actually, the program has currently around 50 active projects to implement the strategy uh, in collaboration with different partners because the program relies on a collaborative model for implementing the strategy. Key features in terms of service development include uh, developing uh, services in line with the WHO pyramid of services, if you're familiar with it, which aims to increase accessibility to affordable, high-quality, evidence-based mental health care. Uh, So we are, in in line with this, integrating mental health into primary health care, uh, in line with the WHO MH gap program. So basically building the capacity of general health professionals in primary health care systems, centers to identify and manage persons with mental disorders. And the next layer for more complex and severe cases that cannot be managed at the primary care level, we are establishing community-based mental health centers that can uh, provide multidisciplinary care, close to where people live in the community. And as part of the ministry's universal health coverage project, there will be packages of mental health services subsidized at the primary health care level in centers that cover areas that serve the most vulnerable populations in the country to increase accessibility to these services. In parallel, there are interventions being done at the level of improving the quality through accreditation standards, guidelines, monitoring mechanisms for human rights, building local capacity in evidence-based psychological interventions, such as interpersonal therapy. I'm sure, Alison, you might touch upon this later on. Uh, And as I said, all these services that are being built and provided are accessible to all persons in the country. The fifth domain of action in the strategy is focused on uh, vulnerable groups, as I mentioned before. And here we identify groups in the Lebanese context that uh, are more prone to develop, uh, that are at a higher risk to develop psychological distress and therefore need particular attention. And here we include displaced persons and refugees. And the objective uh, at that level is to sustain the national coordination mechanism, which I mentioned earlier, the MHPSS task force, and to ensure we have an annual action plan to address emerging gaps and needs identified on the ground. The task force is chaired by the Ministry of Health and co-chaired by WHO and UNICEF. Uh, And as you see, this national coordination mechanism for the humanitarian response is actually anchored within the national policy framework. And uh, the action plan of the task force supports in the implementation of the national mental health strategy and in addressing other specific gaps. So some of the achievements include, for example, developing normative contextualized guidelines such as uh, uh, minimum recruitment criteria for professionals working in the humanitarian context in mental health programs, uh, MHPSS indicators to monitor service utilization, but also some quality indicators in MHPSS programming as part of the humanitarian response, and also contributing and developing capacity in evidence-based interventions for mental health professionals, but also for professionals in other sectors, such as the protection sector. Uh, so uh, basically this this whole, uh, the, the response in Lebanon is focused on a collaborative governance bundle where there is partnerships between the government and humanitarian actors in order to build and strengthen the national system. Thank you, Noor. Um, I, I,
1: I mean, that sounds really interesting and as if the you know, the, the, the influx of, of refugees and displaced persons, the crisis, provided an opportunity really to to make some much needed changes in, in the system. But also in dealing with the humanitarian actors in particular as partners, I mean, I suppose we could say that in many cases there's either a resistance to working with governments sometimes, depending on the context, or definitely a difficulty in In trying to coordinate I mean we say it's like herding cats and so I just wondered what were there any have there been any challenges that you could talk to us about and what strategies have you used to um, address these
3: so yeah I couldn't agree more with you that coordination (laughs) is is very important and critical but it also can be very challenging especially in a context where there is a multiplicity of actors that come with diversity of agendas, interventions, ways of working, accountability lines, and so on. So we have actually witnessed at some points in the national coordination mechanism limited uh, commitment of certain actors to engage with the work of the coordination mechanism and to support the implementation of its action plan. And this could be due to, um, to... First of all, the fact that initially, within the coordination mechanism, there weren't any specific membership criteria. So the, the actors participated but were not, did not have specific required commitments to work towards the action plan and support oh, coordination. Oh. But also because of the humanitarian system, which oftentimes indirectly promotes higher accountability upward to donors rather than to communities uh, in certain contexts. Uh, but this challenge, we, we we tried to overcome it through, first of all, uh, ensuring uh, engagement of actors through membership criteria and higher commitment uh, required to support the action plan, but also through promoting the collaborative governance model that I spoke upon earlier. And here there was a key step that was done by the Director General of the Ministry of Health, who issued actually a circular asking all actors, calling upon them to – Coordinate with the Ministry of Public Health whenever there are new projects in the field of mental health to ensure that there is no duplication with activities done by other actors and there is alignment with the national priorities set forward in the national roadmap for, for mental health. And this actually has proven to be highly effective because uh, it provides an opportunity for actors uh, to uh, contribute to the, to the fulfillment of national goals and it is an opportunity that gives. Mutual gains uh, for for everyone.
1: Thank you, Noor. Um, I think we're going to move now to a very different context. We're going to move to the Central African Republic. And uh, Natalia, I, I, I have a question for you. Um, as we said earlier, the CR, CAR has experienced um, you know decades of turmoil and instability, and you know there, it's marked by civil unrest and military coups and conflict. In the last five years in particular, have seen the development of uh, an immense humanitarian crisis. Um, there's, I think there are almost 2 million people in need. What are some of the barriers to uh, implementing an effective mental health integration program that builds the capacity of... Service providers to identify and treat mental health disorders in this type of context? Could you talk to us a little bit about that based on your experience? Sure. Thank you,
4: Thank you very much for the question,
1: Wendy. I don't think we can hear you. Are you muted? Have the opportunity. Ah.
4: No, I'm
1: not. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Just repeat what you just said.
4: uh, Yes, I was uh, telling you thank you for the question, and uh, I was thanking the organizers as well as the panelists for the opportunity to have this discussion, because it is something that we see, unfortunately, fall through the cracks often in the implementation of humanitarian response. So I'm very pleased to be able to share some of the experience that we have had with International Medical Corps in Central African Republic. As you had mentioned, we have programs, uh, MHPSS programs, that are operating in a very Constrained and challenging environment with huge levels of displacement and with a large swath of population that is having difficulties with access to services and just even even providing their very basic needs. So, with that regard, we currently have uh, to provide a little bit of context. International Medical Corps has been operating in the environment of Central African Republic since 2007. There, we have been providing emergency response as well as support to the Ministry of Health in the areas of health, nutrition, protection, and wash. The MHPSS programming has been in place since 2015. And this last three years really have shown a lot of challenges and has allowed us to have experience to build on for the future programming. So one of the biggest challenges that we have is actually figuring out how to begin, how to put in place an effective MHPSS program in that kind of humanitarian context, where every day provides a different context. And we have seen with our experience in CAR, as well as in 14 other countries where international medical corps is currently providing MHPSS programming, that the real, really the only way to properly assess the situation and effectively shape our program is to carry out a formal MHPSS assessment. Because that allows us to assess the challenges that are there. And the challenges are very specific to the humanitarian context. As an example, we are currently operating in the Otokoto prefecture, which is a hot zone of a conflict that had really ramped up in the last year. Over 80 percent of the population of Bria City has been displaced within the course of two weeks that the conflict had started. So, in that context, figuring out how to set up a program has been challenging. Even understand whether our MSS clients can access the health facilities or whether we need to bring the program to them through mobile clinics or through actually having our specialists travel to the IDP sites, travel to the remote villages. That kind of understanding will allow us to either succeed or fail miserably. We can set up a perfect system, we can use all the guidelines that exist, but if the clients are unable to use services then what are we actually doing? As an example, this is a becomes very important because in a neighboring prefecture where we are preparing to set up another MHPSS program, the situation is very different. It is a neighboring prefecture. We have a lot of similar contexts. We have similar cultural composition, we have similar ethnicities, we have similar religious concerns, but in that prefecture the clients are able to access services in the Bambari Hospital. So we have to set up completely different programs even though On the surface, these two areas look rather similar. So carrying out assessments in this kind of environment is a challenge because of insecurity, because of access issues, because of having to negotiate with armed groups, having to mobilize local authorities, and to get the community buy-in at the time of civil strife. That is the first challenge. And I would say that is one of the lessons that we can learn from that as well, is the need to carry out this. This kind of an assessment. Then the second challenge pertains exactly to building of the local capacity, and that is the second core area of the successful MHPSS integration. Building capacity in a humanitarian context is hard for many reasons. The first reason would just be the actual presence of human resources on the ground, as well as all the way to the top. So on the ground, we can talk about prescribers and non-prescribers, people who are able to identify, refer, and manage MHPSS clients. In a period of conflict, you can imagine that we have a drain of resources that have been put in place. With 80% of people displaced, it is not just the potential clients that are being displaced, It is is also difficult to bring in additional resources because people don't particularly want to go into this kind of area where there is instability, where there is a huge personal risk. Then, it is difficult to actually organize any sort of trainings or any sort of capacity building exercises. As we've seen in Otkoto Prefecture, we tried to set up a training in September of 2017 but we were not able to actually put it in place until March of 2018, simply because during that time, our participants were unable to come from their villages to the training location because the armed groups were controlling all of the roads. So taking all of those aspects into account and trying to remain flexible within the constraints of relations and our agreement has been a challenge. Being able to provide supervision to the trainees has been a very significant barrier as well. And here I'll give a little bit of context. In the way that we have set up the program um, is that after initial training of prescribers, which are nurses and our doctors, on providing care, on providing case management to the MHPSS clients, we have to be able to provide them with supervision. Within this supervision, our specialist, who is a clinical psychiatrist, Uh, first provides consultations himself, while the prescribers are shadowing him for a period of one month. Then after one month, we have a little bit of a switch. So now it is the trainees that are providing case management to the MHPSS clients under the direct supervision of the clinical specialist. This period has to last for at least two months in order to allow our trainees to receive the proper supervision, to receive the proper support, and for us to identify if there are any additional gaps in the technical knowledge of our trainee. Then after this two-month period of supervision, we have to be able to continue supervision on a somewhat regular basis in order to provide uh, provide continuous support. So as you can see, this is a time-intensive program. And I am uh, very happy that Nora as well had brought up the fact that you have to have a long-term vision, because MHPSS Programming is not something that we can do within six months, within a year. This is something that has to be long lasting, which is why we are emphasizing capacity building for local resources. But providing it in a context of instability, where we have trained our providers and they had to flee due to insecurity, due to threats, where we have had healthcare providers that have been murdered by the armed groups. And having put that investment into the human resources seeing them disperse, seeing them go into hiding for periods of time has been very challenging. Um, as a final challenge and that is also just finding the resources. Finding the resources to invest in the human resources at the ground level, but also making sure that we have technical support in the headquarters. Um, we are, we normally do rely on our MHPSS advisor, who is able to provide us guide and guidelines and uh, guidance on making sure that The program that we are carrying out is consistent with international guidelines and standards. We have to have local coordination with the Ministry of Health. We have to have its resources available and their buy-in as well, because at the end of the day, we are not there to provide parallel programming. We are there to help support the Ministry so that after intervention is over, it is able to take over and it is able to provide the services necessary for it its own population, making sure that all of our objectives and all of our interventions are aligned with the MOH and are aligned as well with the donor priorities. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, uh, Natalia. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I think you've really done a good job of outlining the challenges, and I think that all of us would find daunting, and it's clear that in addition to doing the initial assessment it's really necessary to go in uh, knowing that you're going to have to adapt your program at different points. So being able to be flexible and adaptable within that context is is absolutely key while still trying to do the best job that you possibly can. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to move on now to Alison. Um, and Alison, you co-wrote two articles, actually, (laughs) uh, for the humanitarian exchange. And one was focused on a five-year retrospective uh, study of the application of psychological first aid, or PFA, which is a bit easier to say than...
5: MHPFA. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) And the other article was about um, potentially scalable psychological interventions. And I wondered if you could first elaborate on the differences between... PFA and Scalable Psychological Interventions, and and what the study of the PFA applications and the development of psychological interventions is actually telling us about both approaches.
5: With pleasure. (laughs) So in 2011, World Health Organization, World Vision International, and War Trauma Foundation published a guide called the Psychological First Aid Field Guide. And it was intended to be psychological first aid or PFA, which is a basic response to a person who's recently experienced a traumatic event or are having a serious distress response to some emotional issue. And PFA could be relevant if you've been in a car accident. It could be relevant if you've just been displaced. It could be relevant if you are in an acute grieving Process. It could be anything that affects any one of us in this room. And we've probably all provided each other, at some point, some kind of psychological first aid. And psychological first aid was always designed to be that first-line response to distress. It's intended to keep people safe, it's intended to help restore their sense of dignity, and to provide them a sense of support. What interestingly has happened is the Psychological First Aid Guide was um, so well received that it had massive, uh, it it was a global phenomenon and it it, um, went into the world it's now been translated in more than 20 different languages, there's facilitation guidelines and everybody does PFA. And one of the challenges that we've actually had is that a lot of people are saying, we're covering mental health and psychosocial support because we're doing PFA. Um, That's where people have probably fallen down in their understanding of what PFA is. In contrast, an actual psychological intervention, even what we would call a low intensity or a brief psychological intervention, is intended for someone with actual mental disorder. We may not need to know whether it's the difference between depression or anxiety or chronic or traumatic stress. We know that many of these scalable interventions have the potential to treat all of those things without a diagnosis. What the research is actually telling us is that there is a need for both of these things. So the psychological first aid retrospective, which was led by the one of the key authors of the original guide, myself and Church of Sweden... Um, it really said that people wanted psychological first aid to stay as it was because it's scalable, it's easy for people to do and it's tapping into that human nature that people want to be able to provide support. Mm -hmm. If you're upset, I'm able to provide you with some basic social support and help you get through this immediate time. But it is not a panacea and it is certainly not a replacement for people with mental disorder and people who need more focused and specialised support. The scalable psychological interventions that are being developed by World Health Organisation and many others in, in the field of MHPSS are trying to look at ways where we can get greater access to care for people with actual mental disorder. And so they're taking common elements and and common aspects of well-known therapeutic strategies, such as interpersonal therapy, self-help strategies, um, acceptance commitment therapy, cognitive behaviour therapy. They're taking the basic elements and the active elements of those things and putting them into a brief intervention that is manualised. And what's critical here is that it can be effectively delivered by non-specialist providers. So we can train community health volunteers, um, one intervention trains grandmothers to provide a problem-solving therapy. Um, there there are a number out there, but um, that's quite a different uh, beast to what psychological first aid is. There is a need and there is room for both, but they cover a spectrum of MHPSS uh, responses that are necessary in any emergency response. Um, So I welcome the opportunity to distinguish them because Mm -hmm. they are really quite different.
3: Mm -hmm.
5: Um, And there is a lot of research that probably still needs to go into both areas uh, where we know now that we have these psychological interventions and that they're effective, but we have some challenges in relation to how we scale them up. Um, With psychological first aid, we know that it's providing good support um, and we know that it it is a good... I was almost going to say intervention, it is a good action um, in the absence of other things and other supports at the time, but it is not a replacement for mental health care. Um, And certainly the international guidelines for mental health and psychosocial support say that we need to have that whole spectrum of care. That whole building of community support, the inclusion of social and psychological considerations when we deliver basic needs, but we also need those specialised and focused supports, whether they're provided by professional psychologists or non-specialist providers. Mm.
1: Can you give us some examples of of where psychological interventions have been successfully scaled up?
5: Yeah, there's... It's an interesting question because one of the questions I pose back is what do we actually imagine that scale is? Mm. Okay, Um, when we we test psychological interventions and do uh, studies in the field, they're often reaching in the hundreds, five, six hundred people. There's kind of lacking evidence in the large scale in the thousands area at this point in time. But ultimately, to make something scalable, we want it to reach more people at minimal cost and minimal resources. So uh, perhaps not a humanitarian context, but certainly in Kenya, there's been some good examples of doing a trainer of trainer model and a cascading of uh, one psychological intervention called Problem Management Plus, And that reached the thousands in about a six-month period. Uh, there's another self-help, um, intervention which VITSA has been working on in Uganda uh, that's showing some promising, some promising results and that's reaching up to maybe 30 or 40 people at a time. Um, so we're, we're finding new platforms and new delivery approaches that can try to scale things up but we, it's certainly an area that yeah, a lot of work still needs to be done in. We have a lot of hope also for technology supported interventions. Um, because we think that that's going to... We know that there's an evidence base for their effectiveness. Um, we've got to make them user-friendly for the context and, the, and the, the clients that will use them. So that's something certainly that World Health Organisation and others are looking into more now.
1: Mm. And I think... Um, I mean, the one important thing to emphasise is that you're looking to scale or everyone's looking to scale up evidence-based. Yeah. Yeah so so one of the
5: mm-hmm. and and one of the one of the challenges around that is we have to watch this careful balance between quantity and quality. So we know that there is a massive mental health care gap out there. We know that most people who need support as Nora and uh, Natalia have indicated, most people who need this kind of assistance are not getting access to it. So we want to try and focus on scaling it up and getting it to be more accessible. The challenge is when you scale things up, you then lose a little bit of control around how effectively and how much quality goes into how those things are delivered. Um, And so that's something that we have to be very careful of and take a very measured approach. When you get to the point of doing psychological interventions, there is actually a risk of doing harm, mm-hmm. and uh, and poor quality would not only be a waste of resources, but also a potential risk to uh, to people receiving support. So that's something that we need to find out how we do things to scale, including things like clinical supervision, which is very important in the process of delivering those interventions.
1: And uh, just one last uh, small question, or not qu- question really, but it, I, I know that you, use, you make the distinction between evidence-based and evidence-informed. Could you just
5: tell us a little bit about what that is? Um, OK. In, in my mind... <laughs> so evidence-informed is kind of where we look at all of the evidence in psycho- psychological papers and mental health treatment, and we know that there are some foundations and some good basics. I, I think one of the classic things for me, is we know it's important for children to play, yeah? I don't really need a whole randomised control trial to tell me that it's important for children to play. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say that coming from a statement that it's important for children to play is an evidence-informed perspective. I don't have a random... I can't pick a randomised control trial, though I'm sure they exist, (laughs) um, to actually say this is how children should play or this is the way children should play. Um, but we know that it makes good sense, it's good common sense and that's what psychological first aid is. Psychological first aid is evidence-informed. We don't actually have randomised control trials to say that it does X, Y and Z, mm. but we know that it's evidence-informed to provide people with safety, dignity, support, um, linking them to other services and ensuring that they've, you know, they're ready to take the next step and that we've got a sense of being able to help them feel calm, and and, uh, and hopeful about their situation. In contrast, a psychological intervention is what we call evidence-based. It means that the intervention has gone under a randomised control trial. It's gone under um, very specific conditions and it's compared to uh, what we call a comparator group or someone who is receiving services as normal, or a different kind of services, and we have actual evidence to say that one is more likely to improve someone's mental health than the other. Mm. So we have actual evidence around that Mm. for that particular intervention.
1: Thanks for that Alison. No, that's very interesting. I'm in the interest of time. I'm going to move on now to uh, Vietse, who's patiently been waiting in Denmark, and not only have you joined us uh, all the way from there, but I know you're on holiday. So we really appreciate you uh, agreeing to participate. (laughs) Um, uh, Vitsa, I I wondered if you can tell us why the integration of mental health and psychosocial programming into humanitarian response is important. I mean, I know you feel it is, but can can you tell us what the reasons are and maybe what some of the opportunities for and challenges um, to such integration that practitioners should focus on I had in mind, as I I mentioned to you earlier, there's an article in the edition by Courtney Walton-Mitchell and Leah James on some work they've done on integrating some of these approaches into disaster risk reduction programs in Haiti and Nepal. And so I wondered if you could comment on it from that perspective.
6: Yeah, thanks very much for the invitation. (laughs) And, uh, and, And a great initiative. I'm really happy that mental health and psychosocial support get so much attention in the the magazine. Um, In terms of um, reasons for why I think integration is really important, I, um, I think the key reason really is that people generally not have one problem. I think people often have multiple types of problems at the same time. So if you are a refugee, you might have limited opportunities for making an income and having food on the table. At the same time, you may have psychological distress that is related to things that happened in the past, and there might be violence in the home. And uh, we often see a combination of problems. People don't come with textbook, humanitarian, cluster-defined issues. Mm. Um, so that, I think, is the, really a starting point for the need for integrated programs um, at a very basic level. I think when you think about it a bit more, the need for integration becomes apparent when you think about how problems are interlinked. Because one problem often leads to another. And so A to leads to A. So people get stuck word spirals. You see across a range of, of, um, of issues. So the, the example that you mentioned, is this the one of the disaster because. Uh, a disaster for disaster mental um, health concerns, and those mental health concerns, it shows in turn, are related to worse future disaster preparedness, that's think just what we need to address. Another example is that between intimate partner violence and mental health, uh, intimate partner violence is... the what was the focus of a, of a project that R2HC funded uh, in Tanzania with Congolese refugees? Intimate partner violence is the most common form of gender-based violence, also in humanitarian settings. And we know that intimate partner violence, or, or uh, often a husband uh, perpetrating violence on his wife, um, we know that that is a major risk factor for meta Concerns in the assertion. and in turn, we know that being a victim of intimate partner violence and developing mental health problems as a result of that violence puts you at risk for further violence. So I, I think if we know that those kinds of interactions are happening, uh, to me it almost doesn't make sense that we do have isolated programs. You know, don't don't get me wrong. I, of course, there's going to be a need for or vertical programs within the health sector or within the protection sector that address particular mental health concerns. But what we have seen in practice when it comes to control, control especially, is that once you treat people, but you don't address the negative, um, if you treat if if people, you don't address the adversity in which people continue to live, they will be back. We also in um, in systematic We a Cochrane systematic review. Um uh, there.
1: Pizza uh, you're sorry to interrupt, you're breaking up. So I think we uh, yes, we can't really hear you. Viteze, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm I, sorry. We we can't. Uh, you're breaking up quite a lot, so I think we're. I'm going to um, move on a bit, but we're going to have a question and answer session. We could hear some of what you you said. Um, you're basically talking about the interrelation, the the numerous problems that people have, and the interrelationships between those problems, and how one can exacerbate another, and how difficult it is really to focus on w- or how inappropriate it would be just to try to focus on one of those in many cases, although there are arguments for vertical programs in in some situations. But um, I'm sorry that we we can't continue because uh, it's uh, it's difficult to hear. But let's see if during the question and answer session we can bring you in to respond to any questions that actually come up. Um, And we've got, uh, my understanding is we have over 200 people uh, actually signed up to participate online. Uh, we may not have all of those people still with us, but I, we've got a, lot of, a large audience online. We've got a good audience here in the room. And at this stage, I'd like to give at least um, 35 minutes to, for, for questions and comments from all of you. So let's, um, let's move to the audience now. What I should have said earlier too, and I'm sorry I forgot, was that there will be no fire drill today. So if you do hear a fire alarm, please go out this door. <laughs> and out of the building and congregate at Nando's next door, Um, or just around the corner. Uh, So with that, I'm going to open the floor to the audience both here and in the room. I think I've got an iPad here, although the screen seems to have gone dark, so I'm not sure. Uh, We might need... um, Rebooting. <laughs> but let's start in the room, and then we can bring in our online audience. Um, yes. And could you please identify yourself? Yes.
7: Uh, Valentina Yemi, London School of Economics. So my question is possibly for Noor. Um, thank you to everybody for the excellent talk. I my question is about coordination. So possibly it's some topic, I can see you're nodding. So possibly is open to the entire panel. If you have any good lesson or bad lesson of coordination of different stakeholders in humanitarian settings, and how good the coordination can be in the face of leaving the country and transitioning to getting back to the government. In so, the building back better that you were talking about, how this transition is really happening or not, and what difficulties did you
1: encounter? Thank you. I'm going Thank to you. take two or three questions and then I'll hand back to the
0: panel. Um, Fiona. Hi, everybody. I'm Fiona Samuels. I'm a, a researcher here at ODI. Um, Thank you very much for this really interesting panel and presentations and thanks also very much for putting together this this magazine um, Wendy looking forward really to reading it We also have a piece in there for some of the work that we've been doing here on mental health and psychosocial wellbeing um, I suppose I have a couple of sort of comments which will then lead to some questions and I think I don't quite know who will answer them, but anybody maybe. Um, it's really great to hear um, from Noor about the efforts of, of of the Lebanese government to have this sort of long-term vi- vision, and I know Natalia also mentioned that, and that in a way sort of is is a sort of, you know. The, brings together some of the issues that I want to raise because some of the work that we do is in humanitarian or fragile context but also also in more stable contexts and I think we see a lot of the issues that you raise in the more stable context and I'm talking about contexts even such as Vietnam where you know it's middle income, we have a relatively effective health system yet mental health issues still are sort of pushed you know outside and they're not dealt with and if they are dealt with it tends to be a very sort of biomedical approach is used so that sort of takes me on to my sort of next question and again it was great to hear about you know the sort of community-based approaches that you mentioned where you actually have a sort of multi-sectoral team at community level which I think it sounds fantastic and also Natalia, you were talking about sort of, you know, how, you know, one size does not fit all, you know, looking, you know, at different cult- cultures, contexts, geographies, etc. And I suppose the one thing that, that we were looking at a lot, and also what our piece here writes about, is, this, is the effects of, of social norms on all of this. So it's, it's sort of the social norms in terms of accessing the treatment, you know, what is actually needed, you know, is it just sort of your mental health doctor... And it's great to hear that also what Vietz, I think, was beginning to talk about how actually, you know, you know, drivers of mental health or, or psychosocial distress actually come from a whole range of different backgrounds, including, you know, norms like, you know, child marriage, you know, pulling girls out of schools. So I think, I think, you know, some of our recommendations in a lot of the work that we're doing is, you know, how do we address these kinds of issues in a sort of integrated mental health system, which is also sort of multidisciplinary, which is also dealing with, you know, um, sort of other sectors. And, and I think these are sorts of areas that we would like to continue working in. And I think also taking into account, you know, historical processes, geographies, where where our country's coming from, sort of, although <coughs> countries like, um, you know, Vietnam, or we worked in Sri Lanka as well, you know, Relatively long histories, but not so recent, of conflict. What does that mean in sort of today in, in terms of mental health and psychosocial well being? So I suppose, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm talking a lot, but I find it very interesting and I'm really looking forward to reading everything. But I suppose my questions are is how can we incorporate more of a sort of social norms times aspect, aspects into both, you know, providing care, issues around access, understanding drivers, and then also how can we tailor, you know, you know, we found, you know, even if there was some mental health support services, you know, children, adolescents, they're not taken into account, and there's a whole range of other issues which, which come into that as well. So, sorry, I'll stop now.
1: Thanks, Fiona. <laughs> and then, uh, okay, I'm just looking at this side of the room. No? Okay, yes, please.
8: Um, Hitendra Salanki. I work with Action Against Hunger and just recently had a mindfulness and well-being project over the last three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, in Southeast Asia and the UK. Um, one of the aspects that I've been working on is shifting, creating an emphasis away from treatment to prevention as well, obviously a balance and there's a whole spectrum of balance that we need. And I know, No you mentioned about promotion and prevention as part of your work. I was just wondering what are the preventative aspects? Um, it's, it's an area that I'm keen on as well to stop mental health issues developing to a point where it needs an acute level of treatment um, we're using mindfulness as, as an approach over the last uh, sort of three and a half years. Again, we talk about evidence-based, so we're building up an evidence-based on that, and the project's continuing, but I'd be very interested to see how the preventative aspect fits into the whole spectrum of uh, looking at mental health within the, the sector. So,
1: Thank you. Yeah. Let's start with those three. Um, I've got one or two online. I know there's someone else in the room who'd like to ask something, but we'll have another round or two. Noor, would you like to to start? And you don't have to respond to everything, but uh, maybe I, just... I think there are
3: some linkages between <laughs> yes. all three questions, so I'll respond good. in one uh, go. So for the first question, which was around coordination, so you've asked about good lessons related to coordination, and then about how do we ensure transition from humanitarian and development. So in terms of lessons, I think that we have three key ones that we could share from the Lebanon experience, and that I've Touched upon a bit in, in what I've shared before. First of all, is the importance of having a national roadmap that can guide the response uh, and coordination of the sector. So for us, having the national strategy. It was critical to guide efforts of all actors and to ensure that efforts complement actually into building the national system and tackling the priorities in the country. And what's key in building this roadmap is to ensure that the process that leads to it is participatory and inclusive of all stakeholders and actors to ensure that there is consensus and then promote more effective implementation later on. A second lesson, is uh, the importance of having clear terms of reference and membership criteria for the uh, mechanism of coordination that would promote increased commitment and engagement of actors to work and to support the uh, coordination mechanism in ensuring all of its functions. A third lesson learned is the importance of having normative guidelines and contextualized documents and standards that could uh, provide the basis of uh, accountability mechanisms that are quality-led and that can ensure that uh, interventions that are implemented have a minimum level of evidence required. Uh, and uh, ensure that we reach the outcomes that we would like to reach. In terms of transition from humanitarian to, to development, what is critical uh, is to ensure that uh, actors are guided, follow an approach that's based on systems thinking and system strengthening. Uh, why am I saying that? Because as I mentioned before, emergencies, are opportunities to build better system for everyone, as highlighted by the World Health Organization in its "Building Back Better" report, and also because systems integration is critical to ensure the sustainability of our responses and to address actually the challenge that was mentioned earlier of scaling up. Uh, so, but this entails, in terms of transition, recognizing that. Humanitarian response strategies are actually uh, have to be uh, integrated within national development strategies, Uh, because not doing so would actually hinder sustainable solutions and would push towards a continued reliance on humanitarian assistance, especially in context of protracted crisis. And here what's important, actually, uh, to to advocate for, I think, is to, to for example, uh, integrate within the indicators uh, in the humanitarian system that especially donors require some components of system strengthening so that humanitarian actors within countries can support countries in building back better systems uh, and uh, ensuring sustainable uh, responses on the long term. Uh, and also here, I would like to stress on another key component, which is the importance of uh, building the institutional capacity of governance to take on a leadership role uh, in response strategies, because this is critical in promoting these synergies between humanitarian relief that's short-term and long-term development, uh, and this could be through the form of strengthening institutional building of governments and strengthening their governance role because uh, governance is key. And this is actually highlighted by the UN General Assembly Resolution 46 over 182, which is around coordination of humanitarian emergencies and which emphasizes the the leadership role that governments should take on and the support that should be given by humanitarian actors to governments and that. Uh, For the second question, which was around how do we integrate, incorporate social norms uh, aspects and how do we tailor responses to the needs of different groups. Uh, so um, for us, and this is also, I will link it to the answer to the third question, which is what are the preventive aspects? So a key uh, direction that we're adopting through the national mental health strategy is to integrate mental health in other sectors. Uh, So we're currently, for example, developing uh, joint action plans with the Ministries of Education and Social Affairs to ensure integration of evidence-based preventive interventions at the level of schools, uh, such as life skills and social-emotional learning. Uh, And to integrate also mental health prevention and promotion at the level of social protection programming uh, that address the needs of different groups such as survivors of SGBV or uh, juveniles and so on. Uh, We're also doing that at the humanitarian level through integrating mental health in the the strategies of other sectors within the cluster humanitarian system such as the sector for child protection or sexual and gender-based violence. Um, In terms of prevention uh, as well, we we are working on uh, developing uh, interventions to raise awareness around mental health because in Lebanon, as everywhere, there's high stigma around mental health. So we do uh, uh, annual awareness campaigns uh, to raise awareness around that. And we're also working around suicide prevention particularly through building a, a national framework for prevention and monitoring. And we recently launched, in collaboration with our partner, a local NGO, the first national uh, suicide hotline uh, for the pre- prevention of uh, suicide. Thank you very much, Noor.
1: Um, I'm going to turn to Alison now.
3: Yeah.
1: Do you have anything that I, you would like to add? Yeah,
5: I, I just wanted to add, um, <laughs> We we know from figures at the World Health Organization that dedicated health budgets to mental health is Um, very minimal, somewhere around 1% of an overall health budget. It's very tiny. It varies from place to place. And of that tiny amount that people dedicate to mental health, the vast majority of it is still going to institutional care. So the need for this tertiary level institutional care of psychiatric approaches to mental health is something that we still need to advocate to say that we need a broader system that comes further into the community and that's, that's important for humanitarian responses who also have a, a, high, um, a high reliance on tertiary care still without that community, of, community focus but it is also in developing contexts. I would also suggest it's also in some high income country contexts as well uh, because we know even high income countries don't have enough budget mm. allocated to mental health. Um, I know that's the case in the UK, in Australia, in America. Um, So it is just so much more pronounced in low resource settings and it becomes so much more difficult in humanitarian settings because then you're dealing with uh, health systems that have broken down. Um, So I would would just say that 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 gap in care that need for increased budget and that reduction in institutional medical model types of care, we need to continuously have a joint voice to advocate around that. And one of the ways that you can advocate it, as Lebanon has done, is to look at integrating it in a more community-based strategy. So many countries still do not even have a mental health um, strategy. Uh, and many countries do not see mental health or psychosocial support for prevention and promotion and early identification uh, in other areas such as education, protection, violence and so forth. So there are actually other ways outside of health that we can be promoting that as well.
1: Thank you. I, I understand Vize is on the telephone, is that right now? Uh, yeah, that's
6: right. I hope you can hear me. Yes, we
1: can hear you now. I'm so sorry that we, we couldn't hear you uh, in the other connection. But Vietze, I, I I wondered if you wanted to come back on any of the, did you hear the questions that were asked?
6: Yeah, yeah I did. And, yeah. and I'm very glad that there's so much interest in the room for prevention and promotion approaches and approaches to mental health that move beyond uh, treatment in the health sector. I, I think that's absolutely critical. Um, and I, I think Noor gave some really good examples of how you can achieve that. What we have seen is uh, is a major challenge is that the different stakeholders don't work well together because uh, they get funding from different types of donors uh, in the health and the protection sectors. They build up their own mandates. They build up their own kind of logic and, and rationales. And it's really difficult even within... You know, one humanitarian organization to get different sectors to work together well. Mm. But what we've seen is that it's easier to do that once everybody sits at the table in the beginning of a project. Um, and uh, when you can bring... Uh, sorry, I don't think it's only important to bring back the different um, agencies together or departments within one agency. It's also really critical to work close, very closely together with... Um, the affected population, because for the affected population, when you start talking about problems, often the integrated nature of the problems immediately becomes apparent. Mm. And when you can bring that voice to the table, I think it's much easier to advocate to kind of our fragmented health you know, humanitarian actors that it's critical to address multiple problems at the same time. And, and what we often do is we go in uh, with uh, in assessments with with open-ended questions, asking people about their priority problems, but also asking them about the causes of those problems. And that information we can bring to, for example, a women's protection unit in a humanitarian agency, as well as a mental health uh, unit in an agency, and say, hey, look, what people are telling us is that um, domestic violence is the main reason for maternal depression for example. And it seems that domestic violence is critically linked to alcohol abuse by spouses. And we need to address these problems all at the same time, because they're all related. If you only address one, the other will continue. How can we do this? What would be the theory of change behind the program? And so to to work together through the logic of a project, and not to kind of impose that from the outside, if if that makes sense.
1: Thank you for that. Yes, and I the the article I mentioned earlier that um, by Courtney and Leah, one of the things, one of the approaches that they take in their work, and and perhaps this is something that you do as well, is the sort of co creation of the program, working together directly with affected people on some of those elements. Um, Natalia, I wanted to move to you now. I hope you're still with us. Um, and before you. Uh, respond to those questions I also just wanted to give you one more which I have from the online audience which is directed specifically at you so I hope that's okay Um, and this person says Natalia it's it's Ashley Michael sorry Ashley it looks like Michelle Namiro. Natalia thank you so much for sharing about your work in C.A.R. you mentioned that the clinical uh, clinical psychology works with the GPs, and in the first month the GPs shadow the clinical psychologists. Can you speak about how you navigate their time shadowing and their time seeing patients in the outpatient clinic?
4: Absolutely, and thank you very much for this question. I would like to clarify that the way that we set up this program is through integration of mental health into primary care services as well as in other services we provide. So having this shadowing experience doesn't mean that we take out the GPs from the services which they have, would have been providing otherwise. Instead, what we do is actually bring our clinical specialist into the OTP services that are being provided and having him, uh, this is a he in our situation, but having our clinical specialist provide the consultations as a part of the OTP and so, the GPs that are there, normally they are doctors or nurses, they're still present and able to provide their consultations as they would have a specialist is present. And together, if one of their patients that they see through the OTP is an, a person who requires MHPSS services, then together in the same space, in the same clinic, they will be providing services. So, this is not a parallel structure where we have mental care clinic that at a start, but this is actually services that are provided at the care, at the OTP services. So it does not interfere with the GP's other responsibilities, but it builds upon their already the services that they already provide to integrate mental health into the services provided. So there really is not much of the competition. And in fact, I should note that integrating this kind of care into their services in long term reduces the burden on the GP's because they're not going to be seeing the same clients whose issues, whose underlying issues in mental health are not being addressed. They're able to address the MHPSS issues, and they're also able to treat any other kind of uh, illnesses for which they're being seen at the primary healthcare level. So, I don't know, I feel like this is a good opportunity for me also to transition into answering the other three questions, because I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on the coordination question in particular and to give an idea of how we are navigating that kind of challenge, because coordination can be challenging. It has to be done at so many levels, as all of the panelists have mentioned, at the community level, as well as at the Ministry of Health level, and with other implementing partners, donors, and organizations. So I wanted to explain that the way that that we have structured the program is really built around the six core areas of the mental health integration. And those six core areas have been assembled into a toolkit for integration of mental health in humanitarian settings, which has been the labor of love of our MHPSS team for the last two years. They have worked with WHO and with UNHCR to put together a series of guidelines as well as field examples of how to to really improve coordination. So all of these three steps and the three cross-cutting components that are really the key areas of this toolkit address coordination. The first one is to assess and plan for the mental health integration, and that is something that I had briefly mentioned. And the idea of that step is to make sure that we understand the kind of coordination tools, that uh, coordination systems that already are there, the kind of... Of resources that already exist at the Ministry of Health at the local level, and to understand the kind of capacity that is there, so that we can build on it and not just create something that will collapse. Would be no transition, no exit strategy. Then the capacity of the healthcare workers that are already there. Instead of just bringing in our staff that will provide care, leave and everything will collapse, we need to build the capacity of these healthcare workers. And when we mention healthcare workers, this also means community-based healthcare workers. This means also community volunteers. This means a larger systems that exist within the society, so that we can provide this kind of social service as well, and we can address the kind of social norms that um, the second question had brought up. The third would be to to strengthen the actual health systems, and this is a crucial question. And has to be adapted based on the health system that exists. This means, this means actually... Oh, sorry. Can you oh, hear me? We're
1: finished. Yes. Yes, if you want to wrap up, um, because we've no, got apologies. quite a few... No, No, problem. Okay. I thought you were finished, but, but, um, <laughs> okay. but I have some other questions, which I'm going to ask you to respond to in any case, so let me carry on with those. I know we have at least one more in the room. Oh, we've got several in the room, but I've also got some online, so let me just um, pose a couple from the online audience and then take one or two Uh, in the room. So I've got a question from Chris from the Humanitarian Grand Challenge. Um, And Chris is saying, can we all do more to deliver mental health care to people besieged in the most difficult of war zones? Is anyone doing comprehensive mental health care in Syria and Yemen? Can digital tools improve that? So that's really three questions um, within one. Well done, Chris. And let me see. Um, I've also got one from Zahra from SOAS and WaterAid. How would you suggest we encourage different cultures to adopt what's been discussed today? Mental health is stigmatized, even in humanitarian crises, and this creates hurdles in recovery. What would you recommend? So those are two rather meaty questions now. Um, I'm going to call on some people who haven't asked questions yet. And from this side of the room, because we haven't had any there yet.
8: Yeah. Matthias Halvan Matthias from Alice HDM and Global Health Alliance Germany. So the German government
6: is currently in the process of drafting or seeking input for the new global health strategy. And one of the questions would be, what would you see as the priorities for the international donor community or the international
8: research community to support mental health and humanitarian crisis?
1: Thank you. One more, and I think it's going to have to be this person here who's had her hand up since we started.
3: Thank you. Um, Lizzie Hobbs from King's College. Um, My questions are also for Noor. Um, there's been quite an extensive survey done by UN Women and ABAD in Lebanon recently that looked at perceptions of masculinity. Um, and
5: they found that there were really high incidences of men identifying with
4: mental health problems, but also that they were the least likely to access services. And I just
3: wondered if that was a thing that you also identified in your work. Um, but also, uh, UN surveys have also shown that seventy five percent of Syrian refugees in Lebanon are not legally registered. So I wondered whether these are probably the most vulnerable, there was any way for them to enter into mental health
4: services if they're outside of the legal system.
1: Thank you. I'm also going to call on Anne for one last uh, who's just here uh,
2: Hannah. Thanks, Wendy. Um, I wanted to um, to ask the panel, but particularly those who are perhaps working at the at the field level. Um, a lot of the research that we're funding is actually through kind of controlled designs. We're looking at what um, Alison has called the the scalable so psychological interventions, and many of those are actually targeting either unskilled or lay providers. And the idea behind doing this is in order to actually meet the needs of the largest possible number of people but i was wondering what the challenges are when you're trying to develop interventions that are being will be then facilitated by unskilled providers what the challenges are in terms of actually having quality interventions when that is actually rolled out at scale because it strikes me as once you've got a controlled study and design it's it's very easy to keep an eye on what's what's going well but actually once it becomes scaled up i know Alison sort of inferred this was a challenge but i'd really be interested to know what kind of um solutions we can find in terms of the fidelity of the application of interventions thank you
1: okay i think we'll have to stop there and that's probably too many questions for everyone to address in our remaining 13 minutes so if you could um panelists think about which ones either have been directed to you or that you really want to answer, and we'll see what we can cover in that period. And don't forget that we have, after this session, for those of you in the room, coffee and tea outside, networking, and you can ask further questions of the panellists there. Right, I'm going to start with Alison actually this time.
5: Okay. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. Um, Is there anything that anyone can do in a humanitarian response to provide psychosocial support? That was always the intention of psychological first aid. So the idea is that anyone from a water and sanitation provider to a local volunteer, to a doctor, to the local barber, to someone distributing food, uh, they could be easily and quickly trained and oriented into psychological first aid and it really is just about some basic do's and don'ts of how to interact with people in distress so that then we're at least not doing any harm. So is there something everyone can do? I would definitely say yes. Um, very quickly, we are, we're thinking a lot about technological approaches to reach some remote areas. Uh, Yemen and Syria are big on the agenda because the difficulty of getting in and out and getting people mm. in and out. Um, certainly when I was with World Vision last year, we did some substantial Psychological intervention training through online training processes, um, and the results are probably still out on, on on how successful that's been in relation to quality. Certainly, that's the best way to access, but how to actually monitor it, particularly with an unskilled workforce, is is it is a tricky challenge. But it is something we have to keep we have to keep working on, um, and everybody needs to keep working on it. This is not something that's going to go away. Um, I'd just like to relate to the challenges of unskilled unskilled or non-specialist providers providing psychological interventions. Um, One of the areas that World Health Organisation is looking out for now, and it's a key area of my focus now, is to look at what are some of the basic competencies that people need to be able to pass, for want of a better word to deliver psychological interventions so that we know that we are actually putting out into the community workforce people of quality and people who meet certain skill standards. Um, The other aspect to that competency work that we're, we're trying to develop and evolve more is how we look at assessing competency and using that to continuously improve people's skills and improve programs. So are there ways that you can do continuous competence assessment every number of months or every, you know, at ad hoc moments, so that then you can actually check in on quality and check in on fidelity of the interventions? From an implementation perspective, clinical supervision still continues to be in great demand, but the way to make that sustainable is to ensure that you've got competent supervisors who are local so that they're not dependent on international experts. Um and that's something very much on a lot of people's minds and that's also coming into some of the competency work that we're we're looking at in WHO to say, well, okay, it's one thing to have skilled and competent helpers, but we need skilled and competent supervisors and trainers and people that are working alongside them as well, so that the whole system of scale up through a non professional workforce actually has some quality behind it. I'll leave it there for the moment.
3: Thank yeah. you, Alison. Noor? Okay, so I'll try to touch upon uh, questions, mm-hmm. and if I don't, please let me know during well, the, yeah, we'll the have break.
1: We'll be a bit brief. Yes, we have, uh, very brief. So, the other two. so
3: there yes. was a question around how to encourage, how to address stigma uh, mm-hmm. around mental health, which is a key challenge. So I mentioned several preventive and promotional interventions that you are implementing, and I would like to add here that there is a very important role for the media. Uh, in addressing stigma and raising awareness about mental health. In Lebanon, for example, we're currently finalizing a media toolkit uh, around mental health and substance use and suicide to encourage a responsible portrayal and reporting around that and contribute to increased awareness. Regarding the question around what would be the priority uh, to support mental health and humanitarian crisis, and here I would reiterate what I mentioned earlier, which is the importance of systems strengthening and ensuring the merging of humanitarian and development uh, agendas to be able to build national systems that can cater for the needs of all persons, host populations, and displaced populations. Uh, regarding the question about men not accessing services, there hadn't been any national mental health information system that would be able to track this data before we started working on the strategy. We're currently building such an information system that would allow us to track service utilization and quality. And we started actually in the beginning of this year collecting MHPSS indicators from humanitarian and non-governmental actors that are providing mental health services, which will allow us to see what how services are being utilized trends and diagnosis and also the population that is accessing these services uh, finally there was a question around the question around quality how to ensure quality when you train non-skilled professionals it's not any recommendation, but for in Lebanon, what we are trying to do is that we're, we're capacity building, for example, for non-specialized professionals in primary health care on mental health is coupled with support and supervision, ongoing support and supervision within the PHC centers. And uh, we're also building, as I said, the national mental health information system that would have quality and outcome level indicators so that we'd be able to better monitor service provision.
1: Thank you, Noor. That was a very uh, comprehensive answer, but uh, very concise. Um, I'm going to move now to our, our online panelists. Um, could we start with uh, Vize if you're still there? Yes, please.
6: Um, Yeah, I guess the point I would like to pick up on are the question raised about can we do more in very inaccessible areas and the question about um, the quality of care when delivered by paraprofessionals, because to me those questions are linked. Um, I think there are areas that are completely inaccessible to even paraprofessionals or at least to supervisors of paraprofessionals. And I, I think um, what came to my mind was that a, a new intervention that WHO developed may be a good candidate for intervention there. Uh, this is a, a guided self-help intervention that is delivered through audio recordings and a self-help book. It was initially funded by WHO in Syria for the specific purpose of being available in areas where there is no access uh, we adapted the intervention in uh, in northern Uganda with South Sudanese refugees, and yeah, I, initially the idea was this may be something that you can drop from a helicopter almost. That you can drop self-help books from a from a helicopter. Um, we found in northern Uganda that it is not that easy. I, I guess that may still be an option, but with the South Sudanese refugees, we found that uh, group process is very important and some more facilitation. Was found, uh, was found critical. We've done a randomized controlled trial on in the intervention and found that it was uh, effective, running up results at the moment, research that was also funded by R2HC. And, and I feel that that is an intervention that holds promise not necessarily because it increases the quality of care delivered by paraprofessionals, but, but because it actually makes the role of the paraprofessional smaller because it is an audio recorded intervention um, training is much easier, supervision is much easier, and you know that there will be fidelity to the intervention manual because it was audio recorded. That, that might be a solution, but kind of the other way from the kinds of other projects that are going on.
1: So that's an interesting example. Um, Natalia, I think you're going to have the last word because we've got just about four minutes left. So, um, we, we, please do respond to any of the questions that you'd like to, um, bearing in mind uh, that we don't have much time left. Go ahead, please.
6: Sure.
4: Thank you. I would like to just briefly touch upon two of the questions. The first, in regards to the priorities for donor and the research community. And to that, that, to me, really, the priority is making sure that we do have interest in long-term interventions and a much more significant funding. And the long-term interventions that are funded kind of bring me to the next point, which was the question about the role, really, of non-specialist providers and how can we assure that the quality of the program is there. To me, this is only possible when we have long-term kind of interventions. And I do think that these non-specialists have a very significant role to play. A good portion of people who require MHPSS services do not require medicated care. For that, I do think that we do need to have skilled providers, the specialist ones. But for the rest of the of the clients, there is so much that can be done by non-specialists. So we use traditional birth attendants. There is the community health workers, there is first aid workers, all of whom can be trained on PFA, as Dr. Schaefer has mentioned, and who can be trained on case management without medication. Having those resources available in the peripheral communities really can increase the quality of uh, the access to care. And of course, we do have to make sure quality. In order to do so, we would propose to have a first period of intense supervision, during which we look at the documentation of the patients that are being diagnosed, whether the diagnosis is actually concordant with what our specialists can diagnose. And then targeting these uh, non-specialist providers that are making mistakes to make sure that they can actually improve their the quality of their diagnosis and of their care. And then after that, subscribing to the suggestion of Dr. Scha- Dr. Schaefer of bringing them in once in a while to have a refresher training, to do an assessment of their competence, to make sure that they do have the support, the technology, any sort of materials and supplies that they have. And of course, tracking their progress, doing satisfaction interviews, really stepping up the meal components, the monitoring evaluation of seeing the quality of each of our providers. So with that kind of approach, in combination with the long-term funding by the donors, I think it is possible to increase the access to the the uh, MHPSS services and to really provide care to the vulnerable population. I fit into four minutes.
1: Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Natalia. Well, I, we have reached the end of our time now, and I'd, I'd really like to thank our panelists for the excellent discussion and raising the issues that we have. I hope that all of you who've come today and who are online will enjoy this edition of the exchange and find it useful and thought-provoking. And I'd like to thank our, our very large online audience for joining us, too. So thanks to everyone. Please join us, if you can, outside for more conversation networking and uh, a few refreshments. And we look forward to continuing the discussion virtually. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via
3: iTunes.